All right. <clears throat> Hope everybody's had a good day. Glad you're all here. Glad to see all of you. As we continue our uh, study here about how we approach Scripture and where that leads us theologically, that is what we're doing, by the way. We're talking about how we approach Scripture, and then soon we'll talk about where that leads us theologically. Um, I want to share with you a quote that we read this past Tuesday morning in our Tuesday morning men's group as we're going through this book, Gentle and Lowly. The author quoted, uh, and it didn't really quote, but he referenced John Calvin. And uh, this is the view of the author and the view of uh, Calvin as he sums it up in his own words. So let me hear what you think about this as you consider what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. He says, as Calvin put it, the Old Testament is the shadowy revelation of God, true but dim. The New Testament is the substance. Mm-hmm. I disagree. Oh, okay. Why? What's wrong with that? Ah. I think it all brings light to our life and to our Yeah. Yeah, and it's amazing, too, to talk about a, a, an entire testament. In fact, the majority of the Bible <laughs> as being dim. I mean, thankfully, it says true, right? I mean, he says true, but dim. And to say that the New Testament is the substance, implying, of course, that the Old Testament is not, that's also quite interesting, isn't it? So you can see, especially as you read more authors and you get into maybe some theological discussions, you can see how phrases like that just kind of slip in. And you have to analyze those. You can't just gloss over them. When you see those, you have to think, hmm, what is, what is being meant there? Because that's, that's an interesting statement. The, the Old Testament is shadowy, but the New Testament isn't. Okay. Well, um, we're continuing our discussion tonight, and I want to talk about the harmony of Scripture and then progressive revelation. I would love to cover all my notes tonight, and so next week, starting next week, Tyler will walk us through the particulars of our interpretive grid, but uh, we'll see how far we get. Uh, We, of course, know that the Bible is unlike any other book for several reasons, right? The Bible is just extremely unique. There's no other book that's ever been written that is like the Bible. Uh, If you read Josh McDowell's New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he had a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and then his New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. But he walks through just the uniqueness of the Bible. I mean, written on three different continents, three different languages, over 40 authors, spanning uh, well over a thousand years. Just, it's a very unique book. And one of the reasons we could add to that is it's a book with two testaments. It clearly, obviously, has an Old Testament and New Testament separated by how many years between Old and New? About 400, yeah. Silent period of about 400 years. And these two testaments, we have to, of course, admit that these two testaments bring different perspectives to the table here, don't they? Uh, The Old Testament is pointing to Christ who is to come. The New Testament is explaining the Christ who has come and is going to come again. And so one testament is clearly only looking forward. The other testament is looking back while also still looking forward because there's another coming of Christ. The recipients of the two testaments at the time they were written 
were quite different. The Jewish people living in Isaiah's day, that's quite a bit different than the Colossians, right? Very, very different. And the, you could say, governing principles over the people were quite different. The Jew during Moses' time who was expected to mind all the P's and Q's all through the law, it's quite a bit different than one of the, I don't know, seven churches in Revelation who's receiving a message from John and They haven't been given 613 commands that govern their day-to-day life. So quite a bit different. So how should we consider the harmony of the Bible? That's what I want to talk about tonight is the harmony. We've talked about authority. We touched on that very briefly in the first lesson. The last couple lessons, the majority of our conversation has been about the Bible's clarity. Well, this is the third and final attribute of Scripture for us to discuss before we get into explaining our hermeneutics. So let's talk about harmony. Um, When we say harmony, talking about the harmony of Scripture, what we mean is that there is utterly thorough consistency in the Bible. And this is a great, great attribute of Scripture for us to just fall back on, rely on, to be confident in. The Bible is a consistent book. And that's another one of those uh, attributes that make the Bible unique. You can absolutely count on the Bible. It is a consistent book. The Old Testament is the foundation for the New Testament, and the New Testament turns around and validates the Old Testament. There's a harmony through and through from Genesis to Revelation. And there are no contradictions in the Bible. You don't find Haggai making a truth claim that later James will refute, for example. There's consistency and harmony, you could say. There are no contradictions. We recognize that God intends for His book to be understood not only in the parts, but in the whole. So we can look at a single book of the Bible or a passage within a book of the Bible. God wants us to understand that part, but He also wants us to understand the whole of Scripture and and what He's doing in His program and the big markers along the timeline of history. And we can do that because the Bible is a harmonious book that leads us to that point. And so as we consider the whole and the overarching storyline of the Bible, I really want that to be in your minds tonight in this discussion, not just the particulars, but the overarching storyline of the Bible. God has told one story throughout Scripture. He hasn't told multiple stories or contradicting stories. This is really, really important. When we consider that Scripture is harmonious with itself, the storyline of the Bible is central to that. So, for instance, God did not start a story in the Old Testament, and then after 400 years of silence, John the Baptist comes along and begins a new storyline that hijacks the one that was started. He doesn't start a story and then two-thirds of the way through say, well, actually, I'm going back on that. We're going to go a different direction with that. That's not how the Bible works. It's one storyline throughout. And so we have to take issue when people want to change the narrative at some point in the middle of the Bible. We say, no, there's one story all the way through. Later revelation doesn't reverse previous revelation or reinterpret or change the course of any of that. There's storyline development through the Bible. God didn't give us the whole storyline in Genesis. We recognize that, okay? But we must not lose the meaning of the foundation as God builds His story. We shouldn't lose the foundation of the Old Testament when the New Testament comes along, okay? Or we shouldn't lose the foundation of the Gospels when 
Paul's epistles come along. Okay, God has given us one storyline that he's building on throughout Scripture. Tyler, you want to bring up the first slide? They, they're numbered in order, one, two, and three. So I'll show numbers one and two first. <clears throat> and I think one's already up. It just needs to be dragged over to the screen, which is already on, I hope. But uh, last week I used the illustration of a, a puzzle, building a puzzle. And so this is what I used in my Sunday school class. Um, you're building a puzzle and you don't have the box. You are limited and finite in your knowledge. You don't know what the end will look like. You just know the puzzle pieces you're given. God is putting together the puzzle and you're observing. All right? So here's what you see so far. What do you see? Okay, good. Maybe even two cat eyes, huh? <laughs> right? that, cat, that cat's got two eyes. But what else do you see? Okay, we see some greenery there, and we see a nose. How, is, why is the nose over there if the eyes are over there? Yeah, seems like we're, we've got more than one cat going on here, right? We've got a couple of cats. Okay. Now, let's go to the next slide. Should just have to hit arrow over, I think, or do that. Okay, we'll say this is the full puzzle. This is, a, this is not the best illustration, but I think you'll get the point, okay? Now we see the full picture where you've got three cats, actually, and you can see the whole thing. It's very clear now. You'll notice that, if, I don't know how easily we can switch back and forth between the pictures, but if we go back to the other one, all the pieces are in place, right? None of the pieces change their place. None of the pieces change their color. There wasn't one that was upside down or sideways. There wasn't one that was in the wrong spot and you had to move it around. But as the picture builds, you just have other pieces that come alongside and help fill out the picture, right? So you can think of... God revealing the storyline of what he's doing in the world in a couple of different ways. I mean, you can think of it like a foundation that gets built upon. The foundation never moves. The foundation is there. It's set. He doesn't reshape the foundation when he goes to build the walls, right? Or you can think of it like a puzzle where you've got these puzzle pieces that are in place. They're the right color. They've got the right shapes in them. Everything is right. And then the other revelation comes along to help fill out the picture. And in neither case do you have what was originally given being changed along the way. All right, that's what I'm trying to communicate. So is that making, making sense to everybody? Anybody own that puzzle? That's a cute puzzle. And those, pu those pieces are big enough. I can do that one. So. The, puzzle, the puzzle ain't quite finished yet. Yeah, I know. I don't have patience with puzzles. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, that's right. It was good enough. Good enough for my simple illustration. All right, so let me uh, talk a little bit more about harmony. Um, because of this harmony, as we recognize that, uh, you know, the, there's a continuous storyline, that there's a, an agreement across all 66 books of the Bible, which is a pretty staggering claim when you, when you think about it. Did one guy write all 66 books? No. We're talking, this, when you get the Psalms involved and all the different people that had their hands in the Psalms, you, like I said earlier, you're talking 40 plus authors. Who can get 40 guys together and they can all, at the end of the day, not contradict each other? Years. Yeah, exactly. And so that's a, that's a pretty big deal. And so what you end up with is this I, ideal that Scripture can interpret Scripture. Have you heard that before? <laughs> Let Scripture interpret Scripture. So that is basically speaking to the harmony of the Bible, and I want to explain that, but did you have a yeah, thought or question? It, uh, it's also interlocking. Yeah, true. Look at the whole thing. 
Yes. Yeah. These books aren't in isolation, are they? They all touch each other. They, they interact. Yep, absolutely. And so um, we could say the Old Testament sets us up for the New Testament. The New Testament reinforces the Old Testament. Um, the God of harmony, the God of logic, has given us His revelation that reflects harmony and logic, okay? So Scripture interprets Scripture, and this is a, a really handy reality to remember because one verse in isolation, perhaps you've experienced this, someone will send you a verse and say, what does this mean? Well, one verse in isolation, it may contain some proper nouns, you know, talking about people and places. It may contain some theological claims in it, seemingly, that are confusing. But when you add in the rest of Scripture and you get the greater context of the book itself and of the whole Bible, you can start to make sense of what's being said. Uh, any one verse in isolation can kind of be dangerous, can't it? You, you've, I'm sure, dealt with people who go door to door trying to convert you to another religion. And they say, oh, you believe the Bible. That's great. What, here's a verse for you. And you say, no, wait a second. We've got to look at the bigger picture here. Okay, Because if we just have one verse, you might take that this way or that way or that way. But the greater context gives us the meaning of Scripture. And so it's great to do word studies. It's uh, great to do theme associations throughout Scripture because Scripture is harmonious. You can tie words and themes together throughout the whole of the Bible that help you understand Scripture to build doctrine. And the reality is you just can't see the big picture of the Bible without tying it all together. Seeing the harmony, employing the harmony of the Bible, you'll never get to the big picture. And so as in a, a couple of examples, there are books out there like this. This looks like an LDS book, doesn't it? Blue with the gold font. It's even like the same font. It's not. This is not an LDS book. Harmony of the Gospels. There are several uh, authors who have put together Harmony of the Gospels. But basically it goes through and it syncs up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, so you go to a page like this and you can see here it's speaking of a certain event. And here's Matthew's account right next to Mark's account right next to Luke's account. And it chronologically goes through the life of Jesus, and it gives you uh, the same event being talked about from these different perspectives. That's pretty cool. And a real basic way to understand that Scripture's harmonious. Mark doesn't come along and contradict Matthew, does he? And John doesn't come along, and even though his gospel is really unique, has a lot of unique stories, he doesn't once contradict the three gospel accounts that came before him. And so there's a harmony, and you can put together a book and even put harmony in the title because you can be confident Scripture is harmonious with itself. Uh, image number three, perhaps you've seen a chart like this. These are really cool. This shows, just in a, vi a visual way, obviously you can't get detailed here, but Scripture's cross-referencing of itself. So all the red lines are when the New Testament is referencing back to the Old Testament, I believe. And in, in the blue, it's when the uh, Old Testament is speaking of something that's coming in the New Testament. And you look at all these cross-references that exist within the Bible itself, how can that happen? Well, it's a harmonious book. The Bible is a harmonious book. And so it references itself throughout. That's, yeah, don't go back to the puzzle. <laughs> that, that's much cooler. And so there are, there are lots of different charts like that that just give you that visual experience of, wow, the Bible loves itself, right? 
It's always quoting itself. That's really cool. And so let's uh, give an example of this with something that may trip you up, uh, an example from Scripture. Let's all go to Romans chapter 3, verse 28, because you'll perhaps go out there into the world and say, the Bible is perfectly harmonious. It has no contradictions. And then someone will come along and say, ha ha, well, I'm going to trip you up. And they'll take you to Romans 3, 28 first. Would someone read that for us? Romans chapter 3, verse 28. I'll allow it. (laughs) Yeah, totally fine. Go ahead. Pretty simple, huh? Pretty straightforward. We love that verse, don't we? I mean, that's our salvation. Okay. Now, who knows where this is going? What passage am I going to say turn to next? Yep. Okay. James 2. Let's go there. James chapter 2. Perhaps you guys have had these conversations, huh? James chapter 2. And let's look at verse 24. Someone got that for us? James 2.24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. <gasps> we just read, a man is justified by faith apart from works. And James comes along and says, you see, man is justified by works and not faith alone. All right. Here's a challenge to your belief that Scripture's harmonious, that Scripture doesn't contradict itself. How do you handle this? What do you do? Okay, good. As I was saying earlier in the lesson, you get one verse in isolation, and it can be taken multiple different ways, right? Uh, Most of the time. Okay, you can say, well, that could mean that, that could mean that. So we zoom out in order to achieve what? What are we wanting to achieve by zooming out? Okay, yeah, context. That's it. A, what's the, the saying? A, ver, or a text without context is pretext, okay? And so we search for the context of, of what is being said. Now, if you read all five chapters of the book of James, do you walk away saying, wow, James really disagreed with Paul. He believed that you earned your salvation through works. The answer is no, you do not. James is actually quite clear that we are sinners in need of forgiveness, that we need to be justified by faith, that we need to look to Jesus as our Savior. He talks about one who breaks one little thing in the law, he's guilty of the whole. So do you, and that's in the same chapter. You think he turns around just a few verses later and says, but I've been keeping it all. Ah, so I've earned my salvation. Absolutely not. All right, so James and Paul, you know, if you ever get into a conversation like this, a helpful way to think through it is that James and Paul are back-to-back fighting different enemies of the gospel, okay? And when you're fighting different enemies of the gospel, you're going to explain things differently. And, And that's what's going on. That's why they are not writing the exact same things, because they're writing to different people who are dealing with different issues, Right? And so when you get the greater context, you can make sense of that. And we've taught on James 2, I've preached on James 2, and if you wanted to hear more on all that, you could. But when you get caught up with somebody who wants to zing verses at you, remember, Scripture's always harmonious. No one has disproven this, all right? So get the context if you want to understand what Scripture is saying. 
Romans 3.28. Romans 3.28. Now, um, there is a wrong way to synthesize Scripture. Uh, sometimes people will say, we got to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And I actually disagree with them because of the way they're using that phrase. One of those ways is they say, well, you've got clear passages and unclear passages. And usually what, when people say that, it's the passages that affirm what they already believe, those are the clear passages. And the passages that challenge what they believe, those are the unclear ones. And so they don't want to deal with those ones. And they'll say, well, those are unclear. Let's go to these ones I like. And those ones will actually just override whatever these say. That's what happens a lot. That's not letting Scripture interpret Scripture, okay? If, you, if this means something in its context that challenges something you believe, let it challenge you. That's what you got to do. Don't say the problem is with the passage because it's unclear. Don't go there. A lot of people inst- instinctively do that. No, you submit to what the passage says. Get to its meaning and submit to it. And then there's also this idea of when people say we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture... What they're actually doing is creating an artificial harmonization um, where they're trying, they're trying to say, well, actually, um, you know, what these people said back here, I know it seems like they meant this, but they actually meant that. And I know that because this other passage informs me or whatever. And the whole harmonization is just artificial. And it's based on their own presupposed doctrine because they have a certain view of end times or they have a certain view of uh, how salvation works or whatever, they create a, an artificial harmonization where they're not even doing justice to the meaning of that original author, even though they say they are, they're not. Okay, so we want to make sure that when we say Scripture interprets Scripture, that we're not heading into that ditch where we just kind of push through what we already believe and put words in the mouths of the authors of Scripture That's not actually harmonization. Harmonization is let's get to the meaning and find out how it fits with the rest of Scripture. Okay? That making sense? Any questions on harmony? So, just a comment. Mm -hmm. We'll see where it leads. Yes. (laughs) Using your puzzle analogy. Do certain groups, say non-Christian groups, take pieces of the Bible and twist them and turn them and put them in all different weird locations, thus combusticating the whole organization mm-hmm. of the of Scripture? Yeah. Not just non-Christian groups, but yeah. And, uh, and actually, I mean, you could hear our responses when the puzzle was being built. We could tell a cat was coming, or two cats, at least two cats were coming. Well, certain people, when they're done with the Bible, they end up with a picture of six monkeys. And we said, now, wait a second. The picture that God started to build was different than that. How did you end up here? And that's the problem. Yeah. Okay. Good. Other thoughts or questions? Okay. All right. So that's the harmony of Scripture. Uh, Let me just run back over with one sentence. Authority, clarity, harmony. Scripture's authority is the doctrine that enables us to trust God at His Word. Okay. If we believe in the authority of Scripture, that enables us to trust God at His Word. He's our authority. He speaks. And we turn to the Bible to hear Him. Okay. 
The clarity of Scripture is the doctrine that directs us to seek the intended meaning of the author. If Scripture is clear, then we want to dig in and find out what that author was saying. That's our motivation. That's our goal. Not to find something hidden because Scripture is clear. So let's just see what the meaning of the author is. And then Scripture's harmony, that's the doctrine that drives us to employ this interpretive approach consistently. Because Scripture is harmonious, we can consistently, always seek the intended meaning of the author. Okay? So we have these three attributes of Scripture, authority, clarity, and harmony, doctrines that enable us to trust God at His Word, to direct us to seek the intended meaning of the author, and to drive us to employ this interpretive approach consistently throughout Scripture. Okay? It's not like, uh, you know, 65 books of the Bible are, uh, you know, clear, but Song of Solomon's unclear. And so you got to employ a different hermeneutic when you get to Song of Solomon. Nope. Nope. Same hermeneutic, every book all the way through. Okay? Recognizing not every book is the same. The book of Acts is a straightforward narrative of what happened. Okay? You get into Ezekiel, you get these visions, or Zechariah, you get these visions, and there's some symbolism. Okay, you get into the Psalms and there's poetry in there, so there's similes and metaphors. You recognize all that, but you're seeking the intended meaning of the author all the way through because Scripture's clear and harmonious, all right? So um, what I want to do is finish tonight by talking about uh, progressive revelation, taking all that knowledge with us and considering how God gave us the Bible and uh, how, we, how we do this, okay? Okay. Um, God didn't drop the Bible all down all at once, did He? That would have been overwhelming and confusing <laughs> because uh, a lot of things didn't happen in history yet. So He let history play out and He gave us uh, Scripture line by line, precept by precept. Perhaps you've heard that before. Um, he's given us chunks at a time until it was, He was finished revealing. Uh, a real basic way to think about progressive revelation is that Abraham knew more about God and his program than Adam. And Moses knew more than Abraham. And David knew more than Moses. And Malachi knew more than David. Okay? And John knew more than all of them. Okay? Because God was building his story throughout. And so to illustrate this, I'd like us to go on a little, a, a little journey through Scripture. Um, starting with Genesis, and maybe I'll just get a volunteer because I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight verses, uh, eight passages. Most of them are one verse. So who can get Genesis 3.15 for us? Genesis 3. Okay, uh, Logan's got that. Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. Okay. Psalm 2.12. Who's got Psalm 2.12? Greg and then Ellie, would you get Psalm 110.1? Psalm 110.1. Jeremiah 23.5. Jeremiah 23.5. Sandra? Okay, there are three more. I'll get the last one, so two more. Daniel 7.14. Who's got Daniel 7.14? Joseph? And Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. Who's got that? Thank you. Good job. And I'll get the very last one, which is 1 Peter. All right. So, nine, nine verses, and uh, we'll start in Genesis 3.15 with, was that you, Logan? Yep. Okay, go ahead. 
All right, this passage has been called the first gospel uh, by Bible teachers and theologians. Why is that verse, that, that message from God as He is cursing the serpent, how is that called the first gospel? What's the, how do they get there? Foreshadowing Christ. Okay, by what was said? Okay, and, and who is he, according to that passage? Satan. Well, Satan will be crushed, but how is he described? I will put enmity between... Okay. <laughs> that helps. <clears throat> Seed of the woman, right? Yeah, that's actually when he's speaking to Eve, isn't it? Yes. Okay, yeah, and that's spoke. He's speaking to Eve. And he says, your seed. Now, is that significant that he's talking about the seed of a woman as opposed to the seed of a man? Because you know in Scripture, what, Melissa? He isn't talking to Eve. Oh, her seed. Does he say her seed? Well, yeah, on verse 15, he's talking to the seed. Okay, I was right. You were right. Why did I second guess myself? All right. <laughs> he says, your seed and her seed. Right. Okay. So he says her seed instead of his seed. Talking like he could have said, between your seed and Adam's seed. But he says, I'm going to put enmity between your seed, the serpent's offspring, and her seed. Do you think that's significant? Because if you go to genealogies in the Bible, how often do you get uh, a long list of women begetting women? It's usually men. I mean, there's a, a patriarchal aspect to this, a headship aspect to all of this, right? Well, here from the beginning, he says the seed of the woman. And uh, what else did you say? The seed of the woman will do what, Andy? Good. We'll crush the head of the serpent. Okay. So that's our first verse that we're looking at tonight, tracing Jesus. That's what we're doing here with these verses. We're tracing uh, Jesus being spoken of, and that's pretty amazing. All right. Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, Moses speaking. 18.18, 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. All right. He will be a prophet. And there's a sense in which he's like the final prophet, right? God says in this passage, I'm going to raise him up and you need to listen to him, right? Uh, a Mo Moses is saying, you know, a prophet like me, but he's like going to be the one that all ears need to listen to. Okay. He is the capital P prophet. He's the one who's coming. Psalm 2.12. Was that you, Greg? Yeah. Do homage to the Son, that He not become angry, and He perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. All right. What are we learning about the Son here? He says, do, hom do homage <laughs> to the Son. So, just that phrase. What is the son worthy of? Worship. Yeah, worship, obedience. You could put all that in there. And why? It says, do homage to the son lest what? He's got wrath. It sounds like a just wrath too, right? doesn't sound like the anger of man. Okay. So um, he is an authority worthy of worship. 
Um, and he will judge, you could say. That passage talks about how he will uh, rule with a rod of iron. Okay, so he's going to judge justly. How about Psalm 110.1, Ellie? All right. The most quoted verse in the New Testament is Psalm 110.1. And what are we learning here about this person? He is who? Lord. Lord. He is Lord. That's pretty amazing. He is Lord. And he will what? What's going to happen to his enemies? So that means he's going to rule, right? He is Lord and He will rule. That is going to happen. There's a kingly office that He will have. Okay. Jeremiah 23, 5. Here's an interesting one. Who's got that? Okay. Okay. So this is very explicit. Um, that he is king, and he's going to rule where? In the earth. Okay. He will exercise his rule on earth. Okay, getting a location there. And there's, there's more, more to come about this rule. Daniel 7.14, who's got that? Okay. It says, And to him was given dominion, glory, and kingdom. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. All right. What can we learn about this king from that verse and about His kingdom? So there's eternal rule. Okay, worldwide. That's a pretty expansive verse, isn't it? It's like big kingdom reign, big kingdom rule. Going to be covering a lot of ground with that kingship. And how about Zechariah 9, 9 and 10? Is that you, Aubrey? Yeah. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. Now, this one's really important because that the first verse you're going to hear, verse 9, is going to sound familiar to you for a couple different reasons. And you're going to say, oh, yeah, yeah. I know about that, but then you really got to listen to the next verse, okay? Verse 9 and verse 10. Go ahead. This may have been a test run. Was that Zechariah 9, 9 and 10? Ah, okay. All right. All right. We were just making sure you all were listening. <laughs> Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Very good.
Okay, what is so familiar about verse 9? Zechariah 9, 9. Behold, your king is coming to you, O daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem. He's just, he's endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What's familiar about that? That's Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It happened. It happened. Okay, all right. So there's quite a bit in this passage, right? Um, he is... Coming to Jerusalem on a donkey? That's kind of out of place. We were, we were going this whole time building up how amazing this is. And then donkey. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Interesting, uh, you know, plot twist there. Okay. But what about verse 10? What does it talk about here? What's gonna, what, what else is he going to do? How many of the nations? All. Yeah. Look at the end of verse 10 if you're there. Zechariah 9.10. His dominion will be from where? Okay. So again, we get this idea of worldwide kingdom. He will have a worldwide kingdom. And that part hasn't happened yet. Very good, Andrew. You are learning. Just saying. Very, very wise, grasshopper. Very good. That part has not happened yet. Now, do you know that not all Christians agree with you? That dude in the video didn't agree with you. Oh, yeah, okay. But he's also not a Christian. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So there are, there's a good chunk of Christians out there that say, oh, verse 10's happening now, too. And I would say, Hmm, cutting off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be cut off, speaking peace to the nations. Yeah, Yeah, right. Unless we want to go back and change the meaning of these words. Okay. Unless we want to say a worldwide kingdom where he's exercising his rule on the earth and it's explicit, it's from sea to sea. Well, that actually means something else. And that's a choice you got to make. That's a choice you got to make when you approach the Bible. All right. So now let me finish with 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 12, because this is also a very relevant verse. This isn't about, um, well, I mean, it's about the Messiah very clearly, but it's not in the same vein as these other verses. Okay. He gives a, basically a commentary on what was happening right here. So everything we just read. Peter now gives his commentary on this. In 1 Peter 1.10, it says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. All right, so if you're there, 
verse 11, 1 Peter 1, 11, it says that the prophets, these people we were just reading who wrote Scripture, what were they seeking to know? All right, the person and the time. Because there were things that they knew, obviously. They knew he was going to crush the serpent. They knew he would be the prophet. They knew that he would be a king. They knew that he would come into Jerusalem on a donkey. Okay, so they knew all these things. And we just looked at an incredibly small fraction of all the things that are said about him. But they didn't know when. They didn't know after Malachi, we're going to go silent for 400 years, then John the Baptist is going to come on the scene. They didn't know that. They didn't know what he would look like. So you kind of get this when you read through the Gospels, don't you? Like the people are kind of on edge about, we know Messiah is coming. We know that there's one coming. But they didn't know who he was. And the prophets of old, they longed to know who he would be and when he would show up. Well, Peter says it was revealed to them that all these things they were prophesying, it wasn't for them. It was for us who now have the complete revelation of God. All right. And, but these certain details they just didn't have. And that's what's going on throughout the Old Testament is they get a ton of information, but they don't get all the information. We have more information than they had. And praise God for that. Huh? Aren't you glad you live now rather than back then? Uh, there's you know, some things maybe about this day and age that you don't prefer or like, and you'd like to go back in time, maybe just 50 years or so. Uh, but uh, I'm thankful that I live on this side of the cross. Okay. So, um, so now as we think about, you know, like the big storyline of Scripture, and there's a lot in that red, and I know for those of you farther away, there's no way you can read that. But all this information we were just looking at in the Old Testament, God's given us a lot about His program. He's given us a lot about the storyline of what He's doing in the world. The question now logically becomes, as we have all of the Bible, Old and New Testament, how are we going to approach this thing to understand what's going on? How are we going to tackle the whole of Scripture here to get the big overarching storyline of God's program? Not just the gospel, okay? Because the gospel is about our salvation, our individual personal salvation. That's what the gospel is, right? Well, there's more to that in the Bible. I mean, Jesus is going to have a worldwide kingdom. That fact isn't the gospel, but it's going to happen. And so that's a big part of the storyline of what's going on. Now, I'm not saying everything is equally important. In this day and age, we go out proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, that people would be saved by faith. That's our priority. But whenever we're looking to see what God is doing in the world, we're actually going beyond that and seeing more than that because God gives us more than that. And so we want to see the big picture, and we need to think about how we're going to do that. When you do that, do you start in the New Testament or do you start here in the Old slash First Testament? Jerry Bowman likes it when I call it the First Testament, so I like to do that for Jerry's sake even when he's not here, okay? Do you start in the First Testament or the New Testament when you're trying to get this big picture? Where do you start? Okay, but do you start there? And again, this isn't about the gospel. This is about, because, I mean, if it's the gospel, we're saying read the gospel of John. We tell people that, right? Read uh, the book of Romans, okay? Individual personal salvation, you want to get them to where that information is easily accessible. But big overarching storyline of what God's doing in the world, where do you start? You've got to start with the very beginning. You've got to start in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Because you have to understand 
Yeah, yeah, right. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. You have to understand. I mean, if you're talking big picture, the Old Testament gives a picture of who God is, mm-hmm. His self-revelation of who He is—that He is just, that He has to punish sin, that He that it gives you His His character. Yes. Yeah, and. Though the Bible is a unique book, you still got to read it left to right, don't you? Does God expect us to go to the end of the book and try to figure out what the beginning means based on the end? That's what I used to do in like fourth and fifth grade. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. <clears throat> How'd that work out for you? <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I agree with all, all that you're saying. All right. this is, this, and this is critically important. How do we understand in our theology about where this world is going? How do we get our doctrine of end times? Do we start with this, and then this is basically just, the, the Old Testament is basically just an appendix for the New Testament? Yeah. And, and I'm going to ask the person who starts in the new, how do you know what the new means without the old? How do you, how do you know um, the basis or the foundation for what you're reading if you're not starting with it. The, if we believe the Old Testament is truly the foundation for the new, well, that makes sense to see what God's doing in the world. You've got to start with the story as He reveals it, as He develops the storyline and the timeline of history. And a lot of this, of course, depends on your view of the clarity of Scripture. Because if you don't start with the clarity of Scripture... And you start with, this is old and shadowy and dim. Well, you got to have this first as your flashlight, and you take that back with you here so you can discover what this stuff really means. And the New Testament at that point basically becomes a decoder to find the hidden meanings in the Old Testament. The New Testament's like a black light that reveals all the stuff that was hidden before. I don't think I, I'm going to approach the Bible that way when I'm building my theology. I just don't think I'm going to do that. What I would rather do is say, there's a reason why God gave us the Old Testament first. So I'm going to read it first as I'm building my doctrine, as I'm seeing the big storyline of where this is all headed and what Christ is going to accomplish. I'm going to start with what He gave us to start with, and I'm going to finish with what He gave us to finish with. I think there's wisdom in the way that He revealed Scripture, that He did that on, on purpose. I think there's a reason why He didn't give the book of Revelation to Joel, even though Joel does talk about the end times quite a bit. It's not as detailed as the book of Revelation, is it? He's building a story, all right? Questions on that? Thoughts? So, I, I understand the concept of you don't want to use the New Testament as a black light to find yes. But would you agree that some of the pieces from the New Testament do fit like that? It's a puzzle that fits together. Of the Old Testament. I mean, yeah. it's like, well, like, like we just did with uh, Jeremiah, right? Like we just did with Zechariah. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. He told them, he said, and they said, if he asks you what you need it for, you say, the Lord has need of it. 
and that's what you answer. So, um, if you rented the donkey, I don't know what, what, what it is, but the, the point is, is that, well, that's probably a bad example. Let me try this one. Uh, the Christmas verses in Isaiah. Yep. Okay. The gap between the comings of Christ. Right. Yep. I mean, it, it has very specific requirements for who the Messiah must be. And it's written 700 years before Jesus is crucified. Mm -hmm. And then you see Jesus through no effort of his own being crucified, being hung on a tree, uh, being surrounded by uh, people who are mocking him. You know, Sold for, for 30 pieces Sold of silver. 30 pieces of silver. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean. That the scripture might be fulfilled. That the scripture might be fulfilled. And of course, all in obedience to the Father's will. Yep. But the point I'm trying to make is that those Old Testament scriptures are just like this. Yes. Yeah. And so I think to address that With point. The New Testament, sorry. Yeah. No, no. As Peter tells us, you know, he's basically saying, now you know the person and the timing. They didn't. You do. So as you're reading the Old Testament, can you take the information you have in the new and see it in the old? Yes, you should. Otherwise, you're not, you're not seeing the whole picture, okay? You take what God has given you and you see it there. But what I'm, what I'm saying is, does this ever go back and reveal something that was previously hidden back here? And the answer is no. So, um, for example, in the New Testament, Paul talks about the church, and uh, he says that the church is a what? It's a word that starts with an M and ends with a Y. The church is a... It's an important concept. Say it again. Mystery. mystery. The church is a mystery. Now, what does that mean in Paul's theology? The church is a mystery. What does that mean? Okay. Did up to Paul... Well, not Paul's time, but up to the New Testament, did God talk about the church... Nope, he didn't. So the church is like this new work of God, isn't it? I mean, New Testament, new work of God, the church. But there were intimations of it, right? That he would write his oh, yeah. word on the New Covenant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah the, the New Covenant spoken of in Scripture, the Old Testament, of course. Yeah. But the church, that Jew and Gentile together is one new man, that's new, right? That's new stuff. Yeah, does it? You do get some hints. I mean, the Old Testament certainly talks about Gentiles being saved and being a part of God's program, but not in this uh, era of the church. You get it in the context of this, actually. Okay. In his worldwide kingdom, there won't only be Jews, but there will be Gentiles. You get that in the Old Testament, all right? But what you have here is, you know, Paul and others talking about the church. And what some people will do then is they'll say, okay, the Old Testament told us we're going to have a worldwide kingdom. The church, it's worldwide. So I'm going to take this information and I'm going to go back and I'm going to say that Jesus' worldwide kingdom is his spiritual ruling in the church and it's happening now. His dominion is from sea to sea right now because here we are as the church. So they're taking basically New Testament information and they go back and they say, let's put the x-ray machine up and find out what was hidden behind this. 
It's this. What was hidden behind this promise of a worldwide kingdom? The church. Yeah, but peace to the nations. The church is made up of all nations, and we have the peace of Christ. There you go. You're there. The which video? The video you showed on Sunday. The slide of, that you started with. Was that you? I don't know. No, that's probably might have been Tyler. <laughs> Maybe not. Yeah. Oh, that was the uh, last ones there, the Wednesday before. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, that's right. That we're, right now, we are the new Jerusalem. We're the new heaven and new earth. Right. Yep. And so it's, it's that kind of approach to Scripture, really, and just saying, well, this is happening right now. And so my question is, and this is uh, the last thing I, I want to dwell on, and I want you to latch on to this. My big thing is, if God was revealing something clearly to these people then, which I think he was. And they had an understanding of the one who is coming to have a worldwide kingdom. The, the Lord is coming. The Messiah is coming. He's riding in on a donkey. And he's also going to establish a worldwide kingdom. They had an understanding of what that meant. When they heard dominion from sea to sea and peace to the nations, what did they think? Actual worldwide reign nations living in peace and harmony. The actual nations, all the people in the nations in peace. Would that be just the nations that they were aware of? They weren't aware of China? No, sure, but, uh, but the sea to sea language would be, yeah, whole earth, right? Whole earth. Um, that's their thinking. And so I don't think God misled them here because God knew that's what they would be thinking. I don't think God gave them that just so later he can come to us and say, oh, that's not really what I meant. Here's what I meant. And now you know. I don't think that's what's going on. I think what, what God is doing is revealing something clear. And what all these things in the red are, are commitments. Okay, this is the, the big thing I want you to see. God is committing himself to certain things here. He's obligating himself. I mean, think about the idea of a covenant. Why do covenants exist in, in man's existence with God? Does God make covenants for his own sake? No, I mean, other than... He's bringing glory to himself, right? But as far as, does God need a covenant? Well, no, he's true, through and through. Why does he make covenants with man? Because he's apparently amplifying something really important. And he's saying, look, this is what's going to happen. Pay attention to what I'm saying right here. This, he's like highlighting a commitment that he's making. And I don't think he's going to go back on his commitments, do you? I don't think God's going to go back. I don't think God misleads people, and I don't think He reverses His commitments. And so what that does is I'm reading the Bible left to right, and certainly what I read in the end, that information helps me go back and understand, but I don't think it ever reverses a previous commitment. So to quote Daryl Bach, we interviewed on our podcast a couple of times one of my favorite theologians, Daryl Bach. I asked him the question, you know, what's your response to a view of reading Scripture that says we, just, we can't just stick to progressive revelation, but we have to take New Testament theology and import it back to fully understand what the Old Testament was saying? He replied, I don't have a problem with that if taking that information back is actually consistent with what was originally revealed. 
My complaint against that view is that the refraction, the going back, often ends up canceling out something that seems pretty transparent in the original utterance. So if someone says, well, I'm going back and I'm seeing now what was really said, if you're canceling out what was originally said, I got a problem with that. You can't cancel that because God's obligated himself. He's committed himself. Okay, Melissa. Yep. And reduce it. And, and uh, by the way, real quick, I'm going to just throw this out there. We're going to get to all this later on down the road, but just to give you a little taste. Those people who say that, that this is happening right now, they say that this is Jesus's thousand years. And you know what else is going on during Jesus's thousand year reign? Satan is bound. They say Satan's bound right now. So talk about taking a just this grand promise and commitment of God and reducing it down to something that's pretty lame. How do they justify that? They say, well, the text says he will no longer be able to deceive the nations because he's bound. So all he's bound from is deceiving the nations. But on an individual basis, he can still have impact, yada, yada, yada. Well, yeah, well, especially because the text says it's a bottomless pit and the door's shut. Yeah. Man, I mean... That is, that is just so crazy to me to say he's bound now. I mean, Peter is over here writing, he prowls around like a roaring lion. Mm-hmm. Crazy talk. Okay, so, um, so how do we do this? Oh, well, actually, Melissa, I didn't answer your question. Um, what's the motivation is what you're asking. And actually, Evelyn asked that question a couple of weeks ago when I showed that video. She was like, well, why, why, would we, why would anyone want to do that? The best answer that I come up with is because... and. Boy, now I'm really going to be extending a little bit beyond. But this is important, okay? So hopefully you can catch this. I know we're late here, but people see this, the church age, the redemption of mankind because Jesus died on the cross and rose again, and you can be justified by faith right now. People see that as the apex of the storyline. This is like the finish line of the storyline, basically. I mean... They would still say Jesus is returning. Many of them would. But for all intents and purposes, this is it. All of the Bible is about the redemption of man, to which I say, wrong. The Bible is about God bringing glory to himself, however he sees fit. The redemption of man is part of that. But he's also going to recreate the earth. You think that's a big part of the storyline? Yeah. Jesus, a physical explicit rule on the face of the earth where the nations are going up to Zion, where the Egyptians and Assyrians and Israelites are all together and there's national harmony on the face of the earth. Do you think that's a big part of the storyline? Yeah, it absolutely is. Doesn't that violate all of the Belgic confessions like we heard the Westminster, all of us, that a lot of these people seem to... What, what? Does what violate that? Well, what, what's the first question in the catechism? What is the ultimate end of man? Yeah. To bring glory to God. Yeah, and enjoy Him forever. Enjoy yeah. Him forever. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't put man at the center. That puts God at the center. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. It's just focusing on anthropology. Yeah, it's just focusing on... It's, it's making everything all about the redemption of man. Where, of course, I mean, especially for us right now, should that be our biggest focus? Well, yeah. I mean, that's the most real, personal, immediate thing for us. 
But is God going to be doing more in the world than just saving us and building a church? Well, yeah. Is that a major part of what He's doing? Yes. But is there more? Yes. All right? But if, so if you say that this is it, the church is it, this is the apex of the storyline, Melissa, now I'm finally answering your question. So if you say that this is it, okay, then all this stuff back here has to be about this. And when it looks like it's going beyond this, well, actually, allegorically, it's just talking about this. That's all I can figure out about why people do it, okay? So um, how, do we, how do we go about interpreting the Bible? Let me finish with just a few sentences, and then I'll be done. Um, how do we go about doing this? Well, we must look at what was first said, uh, and we must be committed to what God has spoken as it was spoken. Let's be committed to what was said first and build from there and be committed to what God has spoken as He spoke it. Instead of seeing the Old Testament as dark, in need of New Testament light, we should claim that both are already lit. Isn't that what the kids say? That's lit. <laughs> both Testaments are lit. That's, is that, that's a good one, right? Tyler, you're the only one I can look at in this uh, scenario. Okay. All right. Well, no, Aubrey, you're in high school. Is lit good? Okay. All right. Both Testaments is lit. All right. And if anything, we can say the New Testament is in need of the Old Testament foundation. So instead of saying the Old Testament is dark and in need of New Testament light, I'd rather say the New Testament is in need of the Old Testament foundation. We must also be open to more that God will say as we read through the Bible on any subject that He's speaking about as He fills out His picture. So we, we make note of His commitments. We make note of His commitments throughout His revelation, but we're, we're saying that's not His final word on it until we get to the end. That's His final word. So we, we allow Him to fill out the picture. And we recognize, too, that God is not going to take an explicit expression or a commitment that meant something to His original audience and virtually cancel it out by reinterpreting it to a later audience. That's not going to happen. Okay. Because if He does do that, then by all means, let's start at the end of the book and read backwards. You should, actually. But if He's not going to do that, then we need to read the Bible like a book with a storyline and a plot that develops over time. And that's what I want to do. All right? We have a minute left. If anybody wants to ask a question or share a thought, Jim. Um, question about motivation. You know, men are always trying either to deny God or to find some way to justify themselves by their own actions. They, they just want to deny the gospel. Hmm. And, and to me, that's usually the motivation to say either somehow want to justify their own actions or develop a scenario where they don't have to live or try to live under God's law. Hmm. Try to be non-sinners. Or they just want to deny God hmm. before God. Well, yeah, one of the, if you remember when we were talking about the clarity of Scripture, one of the questions I asked was, if Scripture is clear, then what makes difficult passages difficult? And of course, the most obvious answer is our own depravity, our tendency to be prideful and to want to avoid things that we don't like, right? We always have to be so careful about that. I think maybe another motivation that isn't quite as selfish, that motivation definitely exists, is stems from a misunderstanding of the Almond Discourse, what Jesus said in uh, Matthew 24, Luke 
trying to kind of cover for God because they don't want God's glory to be diminished, which is a good thing. Um, but in doing so, they take and reinterpret all mm -hmm. things that God originally said and promised to Israel. Yeah. That's a, a big problem. But, but even then, that's an example of, I'm going to start with Jesus' words, draw out a doctrine from something Jesus said, and then I'm going to go back and read the Old Testament with a different hermeneutic than I used to interpret Jesus' words <laughs> and find hidden meanings back there. They're not looking for hidden meanings in Jesus' words, which I always find interesting. They'll look for hidden meanings in Zechariah. But Jesus, they'll try to interpret plainly, and they'll say, okay, well, Jesus looks like he's saying this, so now I'm going to go back and I'm going to interpret what guys said before him with a hidden message, and that's going to adjust the whole storyline. Uh, so, yeah, I, it starts with a faulty interpretation of the New Testament, and that leads to a faulty interpretation of the Old Testament. Are we going to talk about those yes. Yeah, we'll get there. All takes time. Sure. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, well, it is a, that's a legitimate question, good question. Whoever, whoever repeats that, we say, what is concealed? If they're saying the person and time of the Messiah was concealed, yes, <laughs> right? And in that, we say, uh, let's pump the brakes. Is the meaning, was God concealing the meaning? And then when the New Testament comes along, then he lifts the, the hand off of the Old Testament. And now it's revealed and you can understand it. I don't think that's, that's it. Because what that implies is no one could have the Old, understood the Old Testament until the New Testament came along. And God was just stringing people along for 1,400 years. Which means they wouldn't have recognized the Messiah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. But I was thinking that means like talking about Christ coming and stuff. You don't really know. They knew what they were saying, but they didn't. Yep. Yeah, yeah, person and time, totally hidden. Isaiah, again, taking a, a mountaintop prophecy, or we could do Zechariah that we looked at tonight. He's coming in on a donkey and he's going to have a worldwide kingdom. It doesn't say there's going to be thousands of years in between. So the timing, they didn't know. And they, they're not held accountable for not knowing the timing. But did they understand the meaning? He was coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, and he's eventually going to have a worldwide kingdom? Yes. And is that why they were expecting him to? Yes. Very good. Yes. Yep. That's it. Yeah, weren't they expecting him to just come charging in with all these you know, white studs and all Yep. Kill the Romans. Just change them. Establish his own empire. He, he, he specifically had to leave because he knew they were going to Yes. So, again, going back, Paul says the church was a what? Starts with an M? So now we have the revelation in the New Testament that in between the comings of Christ, we have this church. And that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. Okay? Starting to see it a little bit, I hope. Okay, let me pray. And we need to save the Xanders and the Stuggers. <laughs> Let's pray. God, again, we thank you so much for tonight and our time to be together and in your word. We ask that you would help us to honor you rightly by the way we approach your word. Help us to have a right understanding of that. And uh, please give us a good evening. Keep us safe and uh, bring us back together for sweet fellowship on Sunday. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.